Today, we're going to talk about risks. And I'm not saying this to scare you. If you know me, you know that I really want to educate you. It's so important to have education in this process. And our guest today, Peter Boney, is going to give us a lot of education because he's going to share with us what it's like to be donor-conceived, but also so much about the industry that he knows so much about. And he also knows a lot about what to do about the problems in the industry. He has some ideas how to fix things and what to look for and what you, as a recipient of donor conception, can do to try to help yourself have the best information possible. So I think this will be really helpful to you. And if you need anything, of course, you can always reach out to me, but I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So roll the tape. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family, or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And so today we are here to talk a little bit about something that's a little different, and that's really about risks, kind of in a bundle, the risks that you need to think about with regard to looking for a donor, the risks that you have to think about with regard to donor-conceived siblings. And we're going to talk about this in a bundle, not just with regard to one particular subject. And today... Peter Boney. He credits his disruptive childhood, a college education from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, decorated on the ground service as a U.S. Army Special Operations Team leader in Vietnam, and his love for family, his friendship circle, plus the the discovery of his luck of the draw DNA with making him the person that he has become today. He is a best-selling author, a keynote speaker, a senior advisor, and advocate for the rights of the donor conceived. He learned at the age of 49 that he was conceived via anonymous sperm donor. After researching the entire assisted reproductive technology industry for 22 years while searching for his genealogy, he wrote his award-winning book, which is called Rooted, and now retired from his accomplished business career, high-tech CEO, venture capitalist, board chairman, acclaimed entrepreneur, nonprofit leader, and more. Peter enjoys an active physical regimen, entertaining and sailing with his friends and family while at his Cape Cod residence, and he is also a fun-loving grandfather. He travels with his wife to many places, including San Francisco and New York City, to see their growing family, which is so lovely. And we're so happy to have Peter here today because although he's not in the fertility industry, he really knows so much about it. And being donor-conceived himself, he's going to give us some insight in both the practical aspects of things that you need to know, but also the personal things. So welcome, Peter. I hope that I gave you a a decent uh, summary of your background. Perhaps you can share a little bit more with us about things that maybe people would like to know about you. 
Sure. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your group as well. You know, my donor-conceived story started when I was 49 years old, and this was in 1995, so that's uh, 28 years ago now. My then 75-year-old mother had open-heart surgery and then a post-operative stroke. So all of the locks that guarded her secret with that stroke just didn't work anymore. And as Mm. she was recovering, she began to spill the beans that I wasn't the product of my dad. I was a product of an anonymous sperm donor in the waning days of World War II. This was conceived in 1945. Wow. My three things that I thought made me who I was, uh, I always took my DNA for granted. And here, uh, DNA is really the blueprint of who we are, according to uh, many uh, researchers. So I suffered from this identity trauma. The disruptive childhood with my dad being sick and eventually taking his own life when I was 16 years old uh, was an opportunity for trauma stifled. Old world Italian family uh, kept it all secret. They were ashamed, didn't want anyone to know, might spill over onto them. Um, I bought into that. Uh, Although I thought that the disruptive childhood, I credited that to my adaptability. College education opened doors of opportunity for me that I never anticipated would be that open. And that special ops combat uh, enabled my collaborative leadership style. But once again, uh, when I returned home in 1970, that was trauma stifled once again because the the sociology was so negative to uh, military and war. Someone said maybe it was Muhammad Ali, uh, the uh, marathon isn't what wears you down, it's the stone in your shoe. Yes. I had three stones in my shoe. I had the disruptive childhood, trauma stifled, the special ops combat trauma stifled, and then this new identity trauma that I had just experienced. Oh, my goodness. So at the uh, behest of my family uh, and my friendship circle, I started some therapy. And I bought into the concept, the old world concept, that if you're weak and needy and need therapy, maybe you're unfit for command. Well, I was a CEO, and but I saw that attitude in both the war room and in the boardroom. So I sought that therapy very quietly, cycled through a couple of therapists before I found the right one. And uh, he was an interesting guy. He said, well, son, you just hit a trifecta because new trauma, this identity trauma, rekindles old trauma thought long past. Yes. I had to deal with all three of my issues all at the same time. Uh, And at the time, my wife and I were going through a marital crisis as well. So we were dealing with that. But we, Mm. uh, we emerged from that. Genealogical bewilderment, I think, really drove me. That's a term that was coined by a pair of psychologists when they were studying adoptees. And sometimes the adoptees had difficulty in their sense of belonging. The old days, they called donor conception semi-adoption to make it a little bit more socially acceptable. I was just driven. What was my genealogy? If I wasn't Northern Italian, what was I? Uh, what was my health history? If that's not important, why does the doctor ask you every time you go? Mm-hmm. Did I have any siblings? I was raised as an only child. Did I ever date a sibling or, or, or worse? So these things uh, just drove me drove me to uh, research the daylights out of this area, but there were no records kept in uh, 
the waning days of World War II. My mother gave me some clues, the name of a clinic and the name of the doctor. Well, she misremembered the name of the doctor. She misremembered the dress, didn't know quite the name of the clinic. She just knew that it was a Harvard-educated fertility specialist who was a professor at Harvard. So the first thing I did was go to Harvard, and I looked at every clue that I could find, and I just didn't find the name of the doctor. I didn't find the address of the fertility clinic. I didn't find anything. So the only thing I could do, uh, which was therapeutic for me, is to do a deep dive of research into the whole arena of assisted reproductive technology to begin with. Mm-hmm. I uncovered an article in Time magazine in 1945 in the medicine section, and it was about a law case in O'Hara in um, Chicago, Illinois, mm-hmm. Superior Court, talking about the rights of the donor conceived. And they found a, uh, a wife guilty of adultery. They granted her husband a divorce, and they claimed that child to be illegitimate. Now, the title of that article was very telltale. What do you think the title was? Don't know. How about artificial bastards with a question mark? Wow. That was very telltale to me in terms of the sociology of the time and why it was so secretive a process. So I continued to research this, and I found an industry that was uh, large, multiple billions of dollars, had grown from its grassroots in the 1920s, basically, to where it is today. And the the industry enables multiple siblings, all unknown to one another. Mm -hmm. I researched this and started to talk to my friendship circle about it. I had a friend that said, Pete, I used to breed Rottweilers. And, you know, there are more regulations, there's more oversight on breeding puppies than there is uh, breeding human beings. And I thought, you know, this could be a thought-provoking book someday, a tell-all expose on an industry with no regulations. But I couldn't write that book without finishing my story. I didn't have any way to finish my story. My, my story, to be finished, was that I knew my origins. Well, in 1945, Google was three years away from being founded, right? Mm -hmm. So the internet was in its infancy, and 23andMe was 12 years away from introducing its first ever consumer DNA test. So I had a ways to go. I was an early customer of 23andMe in the beginning of 2008. Uh, In 2008, Time Magazine named 23andMe the innovation or the invention of the year. So I joined a lunatic fringe of early customers and for $1,000, $999, by the mm. way, I signed up to wow. be early customers. And I did not find any paternal relatives then. I learned that, okay, I'm not Northern Italian. I was English, French, and a sliver of Scandinavian. Well, I can live with that. Uh, but I didn't have a clue as to any paternal relatives on that. And I thought, I'll just wait this out and let the database of customers increase, and eventually I'll find it. Mm -hmm. Nine years later, there's nothing on 23andMe. Oh, my gosh. To give me any indication as to paternal heritage. And my now adult children started talking to me, saying, you know, Dad, this isn't like you to to, uh, uh, be uh, willing to stand still 
when you really have this big itch to scratch, why don't you take a look at Ancestry.com? And they schooled me about this company that had venture capital and private equity financing that had uh, tools, computer tools for family tree Mm -hmm. uh, development. And they were brand new into the DNA testing in 2012. And by 2017, they had a customer base that was larger, larger than 23andMe. And they began featuring Black Friday sales on Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. for $49. So I signed up in 2017 for a Ancestry.com test. And that's really what enabled me to finish my story and understand my heritage. Uh, and I found a, uh, a, a relative who opened uh, the kimono, embraced my outreach, and gave me all the information I needed. And on that note, I thought, well, I just finished my story now. I can uh, uh, go back to the notion of writing this book that would be a deeply intimate memoir, as well as a tell-all expose about the industry. And that is Uprooted Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. That came out about two years ago. Uh, The book has been well-received. I've received a few awards on this, the Best Narrative Nonfiction, uh, Independent Publishers Excellence Award, although Oprah hasn't called me of late. Mm. Maybe if I were John Bon Jovi, I'd get a call. Yes. Peter J. Bond, I think I'll get a call. Uh-huh. So I'm all for uh, science to enable wanting people to have a family, Lisa, but just do so with some consideration for the person that is created uh, by the science, people like me that, that don't know their heritage. They should, they should have the ability to know who they are, why they are, what their health history is, and the identity of any siblings. Wow, what a story that is. That's incredible. So you finally met someone that's a sibling or a cousin, or who is the person that you met? Uh, My book goes into a great deal of detail. I got exposed on Ancestry.com to what looked like a first cousin. And did you find any kind of healing from doing that? Did you feel that that kind of fulfilled a hole inside of you? Do you think that there's something that was emotionally gratifying in the, in a way that nothing else is for you to have that? Yes, yes, and yes. But uh, the book was part of my healing as well. I thought to heal, I really needed to reveal. And uh, the book both revealed an intimate piece of me that I always kept hidden as well as an industry that is uh, ripe with uh, some dysfunction. Well, that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that with us. I know that has been years of of work to try to reconcile and make peace with all of this, and that's uh, really incredible. So, as you were researching this, you know, we were talking a little bit before about how difficult that research was as you and I know, pre-internet, when we had to get, you know, the index cards from the library, and that's all we had. There was no Google. Um, But you were able to do a lot of research. And one of the things that struck me when I first spoke with you was that you discovered that there is a science, there are ways to be able to track sperm donors, because I think that there is this misconception, pardon the Pun, um, that people 
think that if the sperm bank says to a sperm donor, you're finished donating, you can't donate anymore, that that will be enough and that that sperm donor will not donate anymore. Everyone just thinks that the sperm bank just has to tell them or people will say, well, I found a sperm bank in even in Europe that is telling their donors you can't donate anymore. And I think it's really difficult for people to understand that that sperm bank, no matter how much they want to, cannot follow that person and prevent them from getting on Facebook. They cannot prevent them from donating to their cousins or to their neighbor. But what we might be able to have is what you mentioned to me earlier, is that there might be a way to track sperm donation. My friends in the canine industry point also to equine and bovine and software mm. programs that enable the tracking. Those industries are, have been using frozen sperm since the 1950s and tracking uh, what they do and to whom they do it. It's just a matter of adapt- adapting, I think. That's incredible. So how would that work? A bank might say something uh, about limiting a, uh, a donor, but a mm-hmm. donor is free to go to several banks. And today, almost in match.com fashion, you have the internet out of control because you have donors working on a match.com-like site. Yes. And things are done in magazines and catalogs. In my business community, I've learned about the 80-20 rule. You're familiar with the 80-20 rule? I am. Mm-hmm. 80% of the inventory is favored by 20% of the people, where 20% of the inventory favored by 80% of the people. It's no wonder with a 10-year life of frozen sperm, you have over 100 siblings, over 100 offspring per donor with no registry and no way to know or even longer, right? We have hundreds of thousands of embryos in this country frozen for decades. I mean, there was a 31-year-old embryo created a healthy baby last year, this past year. You're a woman, yes. Yeah. There are so many ways that people could continue, not just at that point in time when their child is born, because that's kind of what their vision is, right? They're thinking, when they think about donor siblings, they're thinking about, oh, does my my child have a sister or brother out there? But that child could even be the same age as their grandchild. There could just continue to be more and more. Mm-hmm. So how does this work, Peter? How would it work if we were able to track it? Like, Because I don't know anything about the bovine industry or the canine industry. It would be software enabled, but I, I really think the, uh, you know, I had three goals for my book when I put them out there. Uh, one was to impact fertility practices positively. Once again, I'm all for science to enable wanting people to have a family with consideration. I wanted to influence the legislative agenda in support of what I call the donor conceived bill of rights to put some regulatory oversight into this to, to enable some of these uh, sins uh, to be corrected, and then speak to the emotional needs and well-being of all people that are misattributed for whatever the reason. Banks and agencies are not required to update donor records, including health history. Donors can lie about their genetics and their health history, and uh, no bank is verifying that, or they're not required to verify that. Banks and agencies are not required to offer donor or recipient counseling, 
about the needs of the donor conceived uh, to the people that are donating or, or receiving it. And there's no real legal consequences for blatant fertility fraud. You can add this uh, impact of fertility tourism and offshoring to cut the cost of fertility practicing and uh, the gamuts and the cost of the surrogacy services. And then you add some additional regulatory oversight or the absence of there's no quality control in that. And maybe you're participating in some trafficking inadvertently. So just be aware of all of these things and, and before you do anything uh, to I call it due diligence in my venture capital world. They call it due diligence, really, mm-hmm. really deep, dig deep before you make a buying decision. Yes, I completely agree. But let's just talk about that for a moment because I do think it's important also. I understand that fertility clinics and banks are not required to ensure that someone is not donating elsewhere and or that they ha- don't have a problem with their mental health history. And I don't really think that's possible. That's why I think this whole idea of being able to track like the with the software, the bovine research that you're mentioning is so important because we can't follow people. And I think that people misunderstand very easily this concept of making sure that their their donors are cleared. I think that both things are are not true. One, there's no way to be able to ensure that th- we're going to follow that donor around the world. Also, at the same time, we really can't expect, I think, there to be this assumption that we're able to do it because it's. I don't think it's possible. So I think being able to do what we can, do the psychological screening, which will at least provide us with a sense of, is this person trying to deceive us? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, having that software that you uh, proposed might give us some tools to try to ensure the mental health of the donor and also that they're not lying about you know, whatever they're doing, inclu- in, including you know, their mental health history, right? So we don't want that as well. And I think that's really important for people to know. And as you're saying, for people to ask those questions of their bank. The other issue of the trafficking is, you know, a new issue that we're dealing with in this industry. And people are starting to be concerned about that. And for the people out there who are unaware, there are some concerns that there are people who are the victims of human trafficking, who are also providing sperm or eggs, and that they end up in some of these banks. And so it's really important to be able to have kind of this, you know, chain of command to understand where the sperm or eggs originate from. And I think that a lot of people are really not aware of that, but that's something that I think is going to continue to be a problem unless uh, the consumer, as you're saying, is really thoughtful in making sure that they, that there is some sort of understanding from the bank or the clinic where that person is coming from. Yeah. As I studied the science, Lisa, many things mm-hmm. didn't make any sense to me until I followed the money. And then it all started to line up. Yes, well, it's true. And certainly with any sort of criminal behavior, any place where someone can make money, they're going to try to do it, right? And so this, you know, the human trafficking is a scary thing, certainly for the victims of it, but also for the recipients of these gametes because they don't know where they're coming from. And of course, this is an opportunity for these criminals to make money. And so there's going to be 
this interest for them. And so we all have to be really careful about that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Well, the old adage is uh, if you want to run fast, run alone. And if you want to go far, go together. Uh, so uh, collective wisdom, I always find, is uh, more important and stronger than individual judgment on this as well. So what do you recommend if there's a if someone is interested in looking for a donor who is not um, someone who gametes came from someone who's being trafficked, what would you recommend that they do? I think the first thing I would advise someone to do is to get some coaching, get some counseling on, uh, on this whole area from a professional. And there are professionals out there that specialize in the fertility arena. And uh, once again, uh, run fast, run alone, go far, go together, and seek some help. Yes. And I think that's really important. I agree with you. And someone who's seasoned in this area, unfortunately, you know, we're talking about abuses of our, our industry. Even within our industry, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, people pay dues and then they say they're an active member, but they're not really, they don't go to trainings, they're not involved, they don't, they're not educated about it. So it is important to get a good educated therapist who has experience and who's seasoned in this industry to really guide you about how to look for a donor, how to choose the right bank or agency or clinic. And certainly the clinics, we know the clinics um, who recruit donors, those donors are, the egg donors are going through the egg retrievals there. But certainly with the sperm banks, it is a little bit more difficult to to track that sperm, right? And also with embryos, we want to make sure that we have an idea that the bank or the agency or the clinic knows where those embryos came from. There is a uh, research group in Australia, I think it's Monash University, which is a very leading edge uh, reproductive technology research uh, organization that as early days in their research for the health impact of long-term frozen gametes, long-term frozen embryo, uh, their initial findings are not positive when it comes to the impact on health, but it's early days and they have more things to uh, look at. To date, the uh, ages of frozen gametes was 10 years, I think, is a limitation, but that's been extended now. You've got the you mentioned the 31-year-old embryo. I'd be aware of that too because of, because of the health impact. Well, so far, we, we haven't had any evidence of that. And we find that gametes can be frozen for a very long time. And so we are seeing that over and over again, particularly with you know embryos because people are donating their embryos. And sometimes it's a person's only chance of having a child. And so they certainly welcome having those embryos. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, to your point, I think it's important for people to ask about where they come from. And also, if that bank does not know, then where they can find that information out. It is a very difficult thing to, you know, understand that as a as a community, we don't really understand that or think about it very much. And you probably have had this thought as well, Peter, that we've, you know, lived through the adoption process where, you know, early adoptees were told um, or their parents were told not to tell their children and everything was hidden and shrouded in secrecy. And now it's almost like we're reliving this whole experience. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, 
American Society of Reproductive Medicine. That's American in name only. We have like 25% of the membership is overseas in varying places. They talk about a guideline of uh, 25 offspring per donor in a city of 800,000 or population of 800,000. Well, let's, let's talk about that. That's, first of all, a guideline. It's not a law. Uh, and a, a bank might talk about adhering to the guideline. Well, adhering to that guideline, that would mean if I were in Sacramento, California, or Boston, Massachusetts, I'd have 25 siblings. But if I were in metropolitan Boston, I'd have 125 siblings using that 800,000 measure. Now, if I were in a more populated area, uh, New York City, uh, Los Angeles, using the ASRM guideline, that's 250 siblings. Now, some things just don't sound right to me, and that doesn't sound right to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there's no uh, sibling registry. So speaking of that, Peter, because you did so much research on this, and you did mention this idea of law, which you and I spoke about before, what would your, in terms of legal plans for this, because of course we don't have any laws in this country about this, what would you see as being a feasible legal parameter that would be, I guess, you know, a federal decision to limit donors or to limit the numbers of donations or to have a tracking system like the software you recommended, how would that work? And what would you recommend in terms of, if, you know, if we were able to enact that? Well, there are two advocacy organizations that I've been taking my book proceeds and donating that have been working this. They've been working on a, on a state by state by state basis, and I'm assisting that and attempting to put that into federal view as well. Uh, first and foremost, abolish anonymity. Mm-hmm. It is de facto abolished anyway by virtue of DNA testing. Yes. And require the release of genetics and health history, big number one, mm-hmm. to limit the number of offspring per donor to be something within reason. The state of Colorado has just enacted, just signed into legislation, the uh, Donor Conceived Bill of Rights to do exactly that. I believe 2025 is the time of effectiveness on that. The state of California looked at Colorado. Legislation was drafted for the governor's signature, and he refused to sign it. He didn't like Mm. the state taking the expense and responsibility of the sibling registry, so he put that back to the drawing board. Hopefully, they'll come with something that can be given to the governor again to sign it. Required health history, uh, I mentioned the... uh, Legal consequences for blatant fertility fraud, lying to a bank about your background, for instance, a doctor using his own sperm, that's happened plenty of times, uh, on countless numbers of their patients. Uh, There's no law against that. Although uh, now there has been in 12 different states, thanks to one advocacy organization that I've been funding, they've been able to put fertility fraud on the books in 12 states. And that's up from nothing two years ago. So they're making wow. way in the Donor Conceived Bill of Rights. Also in that Bill of Rights would be requiring a donor or recipient to get counseling, not making counseling available, requiring it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Available. Very important. 
And then, you know, I mentioned the sibling registry, just limiting the number of siblings and, and putting a registry together. Yes. So that's all part and parcel of a donor-conceived Bill of Rights. Well, that sounds like it would be great. I think it, it is, though, I think, you know, for our audience to know, although this is like an ideal plan, you know, in places even like in Denmark where they have a, a government agency with, which is tasked with following donors and trying to ensure that donors don't donate more than a prescribed amount of times, there's now, you know, a lawsuit going on because they discovered a donor was trying to donate on Facebook after he's donated so many times. So even when you're in this, you know, small little country and you have a legal group that is is tasked with this mission, people can still fall through the cracks. So even if, yes, this would be great, but I think it's important for people to know that they still need to educate their children because there can be more donor-conceived siblings out there than they realize. Danish sperm is exported to over 100 countries, by the way. Uh, and today yeah. you can take uh, one uh, a donation of sperm and disseminate it to uh, multiple recipients. It's not one per recipient. It's not one donation per recipient anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's always you know, going to be some cracks. Uh, there's no perfect system. But I think what you're proposing to be able to have some sort of tracking system and a, and a database where people can find donor-conceived siblings and do their best to try to ensure that there's some limit. You know, we certainly, you know, learned during the prohibition, if there's a law against something, some people will follow it, right? So, um, you know, we can't be certain, but at least it can help. And so I think these are great ideas. Well, it's important to have a legal consequence uh, for, for blatant uh, misbehavior. Yes. Mm-hmm. Eliminate the misbehavior, but certainly a consequence for it. Yeah. Is right. description of social order. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, absolutely, and I agree with you a hundred percent. And there have been donors who have, you know, traveled the world donating their sperm, and continue to do so, and no one's stopping them. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's great, Peter, that you're doing all of this. You know, in your your golden years, you're retiring. You're trying to enjoy your family, but you're putting a lot of time and energy into this mission to help people. And I think that's wonderful. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And your finances. Um, you know, the the proceeds from this book are going to help, which is incredibly generous of you as well. Well, once again, I, I set some goals for the for the book, and I'm, I'm following through with that. And for everyone out there, I hope that you're you're not scared by all of this, but instead educated and have some sense of what's possible and what isn't possible, but most of all f- for you to know that there are risks in this. And although everyone who pursues donor conception feels excited about that, because for many people, that's their only way of having a family, and that's wonderful, but it is important to be really thoughtful, just like you would be about anything else. There are a lot of risks in this industry, and we need to be mindful of them and protect themselves and protect your family. Take the emotions out of it and take a look at it as a buying decision also. I mean, people research automobiles and refrigerators more than they're researching a conception of a human being. Mm-hmm. Do the due diligence of research on this. You're not having a donor-conceived child. You're having a 
donor conceived person that grows to be an adult like me. And uh, there are consequences of uh, trauma with uh, all of the secrecy that goes with it. And all of the social research that has been done uh, has uh, agreed that it's just in the best interest uh, of everybody, including the child, to know right up front, right from the very get-go, that his origin is part of his woodwork. Yes, 100%. We all feel that way here. I think most people who are listening agree with that. But I think many people don't know how important the research is because it is an emotional decision. And very often people just assume that everything's going to work out fine. But as you said, there are emotional consequences, but there also could be medical consequences. So we really need to make sure that um, you do your homework. And fortunately, there are people out there like you, Peter, who are you know in behind the scenes trying to do the good work to try to make this a healthier process for everyone. So on behalf of my audience and me, we really appreciate it. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Is there any way, um, as we wind down now, Peter, is there any way for people to reach you if they have questions? I have a website for this book. It's www.peterjbonnie.com. Uh, there's ways to reach me on that website as well. Great. Every author wants you to read this book and do a review on it as well and tell your friends about it. Especially if it's a good review. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. And so thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate it. And for all of you out there, thank you for joining us today. It's really important for you to take care of yourselves and care for your future family. Unfortunately, there's no way to unwind a problem later. It's really important to do your homework up front. So I think that's kind of the bottom line of what we're talking about today. And we hope that you do that. And we hope that you join us next time because we have lots more to talk about. So thanks so much for coming. And of course, you can reach me at familybuilding.net anytime. And I hope to see you soon. 